If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Galatians uh, chapter 4, end of chapter 3. We'll kind of bounce between chapter 3 and chapter 4 today. But this morning in our college Sunday school class, by the way, if you don't know this, just shameless plugs here and there, we do Sunday uh, school classes every Sunday morning at 9.30. Uh, we have wonderful classes that you could get plugged into. Uh, I teach our kind of college young adults class. It's super fun. We have other dynamically awesome classes to just kind of learn more about the Bible, make it your own, get more involved in community. I, I would just invite you to come be a part of that if you're not already. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. But uh, we were talking about it, and uh, one, of, one of the college girls said, I don't even know what that thing up front really even is. And I realized I haven't explained this in a while, so I need to take a few minutes this morning and just kind of explain what this is. So uh, at the very beginning of this year, we set out that we as a church wanted to kind of have five key values, five core values as a church. And each one of these are representative of one of those core values. So the green is the value that we call life-giving. And the idea of that one is that our God is in himself a life-giving God. The very first thing God does in all of scripture is creates life. And so in the same way that God gives life, we want to be a life-giving church. We want it to be so that anyone that walks through these doors, that we love them, we encourage them, uh, we give life to them. We want to be a church that whenever anyone encounters any of us outside of these four walls, it's a life-giving experience that people think, man, that person goes to First Baptist and I love being around them. But we believe that only happens because of the red. The red's for gospel-rooted. We can actually only be life-giving when we root ourselves into the gospel of Jesus, when we trust that we are broken in our sin, but God came down wrapped in flesh himself uh, as Jesus the Messiah. He lived a perfect life and then gave that up for our sins. And that when we put our faith in that, we not only become life-giving, but we actually become spirit-filled. That's what the white one is. That God himself takes up residence within us. He lives inside of us. He empowers us and directs us. And while that's not just this crazy convulsing insanity, it is this idea that God just gives us pulls and tugs. He enlightens scripture. He helps us to understand the way the world works. And he leads us to take action in ways that we otherwise would not. He takes control of our lives. And as we do that, then we begin to belong to this community together. A community that's life-giving and gospel-rooted and spirit-filled. And so all throughout this year, we've been talking about these four things. And the challenge has been, anyone that wants to, that, that includes you, if you have an experience with First Baptist that's life-giving or gospel-rooted or spirit-filled or, or community, then you come and you grab a marble. So you, you know, you guys rocking all your orange things this morning just gave me life. I love it. So you put one in the tube and that's just a little representation of, hey, we did what we wanted to do. So every single one of these stones and every one of these tubes are stories about how we fulfilled life-giving, gospel-rooted, spirit-filled community. And now we're getting in as the final sermon series of the year before we get to Thanksgiving and Christmas, this last one called Belonging. Now, if you'll notice in this kind of example, belonging is kind of a noticeable less. It's, it's a little bit shorter than the rest of them. And that makes sense because belonging, well, number one, we've not talked about it yet. But number two, it's a little bit more ambiguous, a little bit more abstract. Uh, the term belong in itself, it covers this vast array of different scenarios, right? Because uh, I, as a pastor, I belong to a kind of a, a, a subsect of a group of people called ordained reverends. I have a title of ordained reverend. I'm never one to like claim that title because I, it just doesn't set well with me for some reason. Like reverend, that's... But I, I belong to that group of people. And that uh, belonging, that title, grants me some opportunities in the eyes of the U.S. government. 
So as an ordained reverend, I have the right, according to our government, to sign wedding certificates, to officiate weddings, all of that stuff because of my title. Uh, because of my title, I have the right to have my taxes treated a little bit differently. As a reverend, you get to deduct your housing from your taxes. It's an old thing from uh, parsonages and all that other stuff that we won't get into. But that's a right I have, an opportunity I have because of this group I belong to. Belonging to that group as a, as a reverend also entitles me to certain, certain opportunities within the Baptist convention, right? It, it's an affirmation of my theology and my calling. So here in two weeks, uh, we'll have the statewide Baptist convention in Farmington, and I get to preach the annual sermon this year. I'm really excited for that. That's because I carry this title with me. It's an affirmation. So why is it that I get to carry the title ordained reverend? It's actually pretty easy because we did this not too long ago with Pastor David. Because at some point I, I worked and I studied and I stood before a council of other ordained men and I had to give an account of my theology, an account of my calling, uh, an account of all of these stuff, my testimony. Um, and then I, they examined it and they asked me questions about it. And then after they thought it was satisfactory, they signed off on it that God has called me to ministry. So I belong to this group because there was a conviction, a calling, a belief, a, a faith. There was these decisions that led to a lifestyle. I belong to that. It's a really cool thing for me. I also belong to the Taco Bell Rewards Program. <laughs> and as a member of the Taco Bell Rewards Program, I'm allotted certain opportunities. I get free tacos. Every purchase I make gives me points towards more tacos. And I go to Taco Bell so often that every like, other day my phone's like, hey, you have a free taco waiting for you. Right? I'm a part, I'm a member of the Taco Bell Rewards Program. How did I become a, a member of the Taco Bell Rewards Program? How do I belong to that, you ask? I went to Taco Bell enough times that the app's like, we're just going to start giving you stuff. That's about how this goes, right? So I, I both, right, in this, I belong to the Taco Bell Rewards Program, and I belong to being a ordained reverend. Do those two things hold as much weight? Yes, they do. No, not at all. Not at all they don't, right? One is more or less like a personal liking, irrelevant to the direction of my life, my calling, my identity. The other is a pivotal part of who I am, my identity, my lifestyle, my culture. It, it carries with me wherever I go, be it in a pulpit or at Walmart. Those are things that even uh, last Friday night, we went to the big band dance and uh, met a guy there that recognized me from a funeral. And the whole night he was just calling me reverend. And I was like, you don't have to call me, but thank you. I appreciate it. Um, that identity carries with me wherever I go. The Taco Bell rewards program, not so much. It's just not that, not that important. So we all have this multitude of things that we belong to, these groups, positions, all of this stuff. And some are fun or entertaining, but they're more or less irrelevant to our direction of life, a fan club, a particular sport that we like to watch, a TV show or movie series, right? I, I belong to the Marvel Cinematic Universe fan club. I belong to Doctor, is Doctor Who still a thing? Do people watch that anymore? Fan, fan club. And then others are more life altercating. So if you belong to something like Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a little bit more intentional. Because in that, you're saying, hey, I actually come from a place that I want to join a, ground, a group of people, that we've both come out of this, and we want to help one another. So there's more intentionality within it, more direction, more obligation because of that. Or you can belong to playing for a sports team rather than just cheering from the stands, earning a doctorate in a particular field. My, my point is, 
with this spectrum in mind, because belonging entails a spectrum, to say you belong to a particular group or movement or program, it may or it may not hold value. So what do we mean when we say, I I belong to God? What do we mean when we say, hey, you, you belong to God, we belong to God? I mean, is that like the idea of belonging to this group of ordained reverends, or is that like belonging to the Taco Bell Rewards program? What does it mean when we say, I belong to God? And this is what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. But for today, what I want to do is just take some time and walk through some key parts of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so we'll walk through that, talk through that a little bit. And then at the end, I just want to answer some key questions and kind of get the direction started for where these sermons are going to go the next few weeks. So let me set up some context. It matters. So Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. And in this church, you have uh, just a lot of non-Jewish Christ followers. For Paul, this is an incredible thing. Because Paul's entire life goal, his calling, his purpose, is that he would set out and reach the Gentiles. Galatians is a testimony, the church here is a testimony that Paul's done that very thing. So Paul plants this church, he teaches them this theology, there's this amazing works of the Spirit, there's renewed lives in Christ, there's forgiveness of sins, all of this stuff is happening. And so Paul, once he thinks he gets it to a stage that they're pretty well set, he decides he's going to go on a trip, he takes off, and as he's out on his trip, he gets word that this group of people have come into this church that are Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians have come in, and they've started saying to the church, hey, uh, you know, it's great that you're down to give allegiance to Jesus, but but just so you know, you're not really on Jesus' team until you start following all the customs of the Torah. So if you really want to follow Jesus, uh, you need to eat kosher, and you need to practice all the purity laws, and you need to follow the Jewish dress code. And all of this stuff is what you need to do if you're going to be a Christ follower. So Paul writes this letter uh, in response to that, and he's, he's gut-punched. In chapter 1, verse 6, he starts off, and your version may say, I'm amazed, or I'm bewildered. I think, like, the better modern translation is something along the lines of, it blows my mind that you've so quickly turned from the gospel. So he spends a couple chapters, he summarizes the gospel. A couple more chapters talking about how this plays out in a new multi-ethnic family. And then finally, he talks about how this was God's intention all along, because it's actually not a set of rules that changes people, It's God's spirit himself that transforms and changes us from within. But for today, I want to just jump into chapter 3 and chapter 4, right into the heart of Paul's argument that faith in Jesus is more important than obedience to Torah. That actually to belong to God means you put your faith in Jesus, not just abide by this Torah law. So that's the starting point. Not obedience, it's faith. Let me read, starting in chapter 3, verse 27, and then I'm going to go through chapter 4, Uh, Verse 7. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have now been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belonging to Christ then are Abraham's, or and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heir according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, He differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. 
And it's because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then God has made you an heir. It's right there at the very end of chapter 3, verse 29, Paul is going to say, hey, and if you belong to Christ. So Paul seems to be building on this idea that, hey, there is a group of people out there that belong to Jesus, and there's a group of people out there that don't belong to Jesus. So what does all of that mean? What does it mean to belong to Christ? And Paul puts a very clear no in this. In verse 28, he says, there is no Jew or Greek, nor slave or free, male or female, right? So in Paul's minds, to belong to Jesus actually has nothing to do with your ethnicity. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with your economy, slave, free, servant. That, that doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with your gender, male or female. Paul is writing to a culture where these things are actually incredibly important to your position in society. If you want to hold a, a office within the Roman government, then you're going to have to be free, you're going to have to be male, and you're going to have to be Roman. Those are questions that are going to get asked to determine where you fall in society. But Paul's saying, hey, actually, when it comes to following Jesus, none of that matters. That's not God's point. Belonging to Christ is not about ethnicity or economy or position or gender or any of that stuff. Well, what, what's it about then? Well, verse 27, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Now, I, I should make a clarification here. There is a notable difference between the literal idea of being baptized in water, which symbolizes the internal, spiritual, metaphorical act of being baptized in Christ. So, so when Paul says this, he's not saying, hey, for those of you that have been dunked underwater and come back out, you belong to Christ. That would fly in the face of everything Paul said up until this point. Everything Paul's getting at is all about you're saved by faith. You're saved by faith. It's only faith. It's not works. It's just faith over and over. We'll touch on that a little bit more at the end. So it's not this literal act of baptism, but what Paul's saying is, hey, if you've given your life to Jesus and in the process have died to your sins and been raised again in the new life that Christ offers, if that is who you are, that's the determining factor on who belongs to to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then you've been baptized in Jesus. And then Paul's going to take that and he's going to launch it all the way back to the Abraham covenant. So he says in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now this is fascinating because who is Paul mainly writing to? Gentiles. Gentiles are not Abraham's seed. The Jewish nation would have claimed that and had very meticulous tracks of their life, genealogies that trace back so that they could definitively prove they come from Abraham. Gentiles didn't have that. And yet Paul's saying, actually, you Gentiles, you're also a part of this covenant now. You're still a part of the Abraham covenant starting all the way back in Genesis 12. I don't have time to head, dive headfirst into this, but let me just highlight it for you real quick. Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the land that he knows to follow Yahweh in faith. And God says, hey, if you follow me in return, and he gives him a set of promises. God says that he'll make Abram into a great nation, that he'll bless him and he'll bless the world through him. So the final quote of this kind of covenant is, hey, Abraham, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what Paul's doing is Paul's now picking up on this ancient promise. And I think we miss this sometimes. 
Because to us, Genesis 12 is ancient, right? I mean, that, that is kind of mind-boggling ancient in some ways, like four or 5,000 years ago. But it was ancient even when Paul was writing. This was still an ancient promise even to Paul. And Paul's taking it and he's pulling it all the way to the church in Galatians and thereby pulling it all the way to the church today. And he's saying, actually, you get to claim that same promise simply because you've put your faith in Jesus. So Paul's pointing out that those who belong to Christ are not just the fulfillment of the promised blessing, but are themselves supposed to be a blessing to others. It's a twofold promise. The promise is fulfilled in that Jesus loves you, but it is then being fulfilled in that you get to be a blessing to other people because you belong to Christ. It's an ongoing covenant that God has promised 5,000 years ago. So Paul's pulling out this ancient promise, and he's applying it not to the bloodline of Abraham, but to whoever would come and put their faith in the Messiah. So, so this is why we can still sing, right? Father Abraham and many sons, Israel, I am one of them, so are you. We can sing that, because the determining factor of Father Abraham and who gets to be his sons and daughters is not bloodline, but faith in Jesus. It's just Paul's point all throughout this. So he follows this out. Uh, but the question is, how does a child that is not blood-related to a family become a child of that family? We have a word for it. We use the word adoption. Yeah, Paul's going to follow this exact idea through chapter 4. So he goes in and he says, hey, according to the promise, now I say that as long as an heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those of the law so that we might receive adoption. Paul's going to follow this out, and he's going to say, hey, actually, belonging to Abraham is not about bloodline, it's about adoption. The illustration he's using is following the common practice of family dynamics and adoption within the Roman culture. So we, we miss this sometimes because we don't live that way. Just imagine this with me, Roman culture, right? Uh, typically, the way Roman culture is going to work is if you are a particularly wealthy person, let's say you own and operate a farm on the outside of Galatia, and so you operating this farm are probably going to have a multitude of servants working for you. Typically what people that were lower class would do is they would come in and they would sign a thing that would say, hey, you'll provide me housing and food and maybe some sort of stipend and then I'll work this farm for you. It's bond servant or bond slaves. And so the owner of this operation would have multitude of slaves or servants, however you want to say that, uh, running that operation. Now here's, here's the thing that's interesting about that. These servants, most of them may even have children of their own, right? So they have their kids. The owner of the operation has his kids. So where are all the kids in this operation? Because there wasn't like a big yellow chariot that would pull up every day and like, we're taking them off to school, see you guys later. No, what this owner would do is the owner would hire a tutor and then every student within or every child within this operation would fall underneath this tutor. So Paul's saying, hey, go to a farm and look at this. You'll notice that even the child of the one who owns the entire operation is in the exact same class, sitting next to the same children of the servants around him. They're treated the exact same. They're coming from the exact same position. Sure, they will one day own it all, but they are still stuck under the tutor that's teaching them. This is Paul's very point. 
He's saying it's no different with Jews and Gentiles. Sure, you, you Jewish people, you can claim to be an heir to the family, but you're actually in the same position as everyone else. Because who in this story, or who in that illustration, is indebted and belongs to the owner of the operation? Everyone. The child, the servant, the servant's child. All of it belongs to the one who owns the operation. So the question is actually not bloodline or inheritance rights. The question in Paul's mind is about adoption. Because it's not a question of who does or do not belong. It's a question of who needs rescue. And the answer is an astounding, everybody needs rescue. Every single person under this operation needs rescue. This is why Jesus comes and he dies and he offers us the chance to be adopted. And so Paul is going to go on and he's going to explain even further in verse 6. And it's because that Jesus has come that we might be adopted, that God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. According to Paul, it's actually only after the adoption takes place that the act of true belonging can begin. So the adoption is offered at the death, burial, and resurrection of the rescuer, of Jesus, who, who bought us, who brought us access, not to the bloodline of Abraham, but the truest relationship of God the Father and God the Son. The adoption is not actually into the family of Abraham. The adoption is into the family of the Trinity. This is Paul's point. The adoption comes from the Father and the Son together. And he's going to go off and he's going to quote Jesus. And he's going to say, actually, it's this very reason that the way we now address God is not necessarily just in the Jewish way of addressing God. It's in the way Jesus addressed God, crying out, Abba. Abba is Aramaic. It's an intimate word for, for Father. So in the temple, there were plenty of ways that uh, the Jewish people would use the word Abinu, which is, or uh, Abinu, which is our Father. So we, we would even do that, right, when we start the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. You always got to say it in the King James Version, right? So that was a common practice within the temple. Abenu, our Father. It's a very formal way. There were some that may have even used, uh, still a f- formal, but they may use the word Abi or Abi, which is my Father. But Jesus uses the word Abba, which is far more intimate. It's far more tangible. It's something that no Jewish person would have ever thought to call God. And Paul says, we actually get to do that. Because the relationship we have with God is the same relationship Jesus has with the Father. We're adopted into that same thing. In fact, we have that same spirit within us that allows us to also cry out, Abba, Father. In Paul's mind, this is truly what it means to belong as a son or daughter, as an heir to the throne. Here's my point in walking through this, and then we'll talk about some questions. Paul sees a world where every single person belongs to God. But one particular nation, Israel, is not just owned by God, doesn't just belong by God, but they were called out by God. In hopes of teaching and maintaining truth, God appoints a tutor over this family. We call it the law, the Torah. However, this this tutor, while acting as kind of a strict school teacher, keeping the kids in line, in the process imprisoned them all demonstrating this constant reality of sin that no one could actually live up to it. So rather than just promoting them out of the class, God chose himself to come in flesh and actually uphold the law, to do what they never could. And in doing so, he frees his children from the oppressive tutor into new life, where God again assumes the role of father. But but here's the thing no one saw coming. 
It's not adoption into the family of Israel that alleviates the oppression of law and sin. It's adoption directly into the loving relationship of the Father and the Son, meaning that everyone belongs to God, that God's looking for something a bit more intimate. So what does all this mean? Let me ask some key questions. Number one, who, who belongs to God? This is kind of the main point of the day that I want you to pick up and understand. But the answer is simply this. All humanity belongs to God. Every single person in the universe belongs to God. Now, we, we love the idea of putting dividing lines in that question. In fact, we've done it ever since the early church. Do, do Jewish people belong to God or do the Greeks belong to God? Yes. Following the Reformation, is it Catholics that belong to God or is it Protestants that belong to God? Or in modern charismatic movement, is it those who speak in tongues or those who don't speak in tongues? Who, who belongs to God? Or uh, modern politics, is it Republicans or Democrats? We just want to draw our dividing lines and say, these people belong to God, these people don't. And the Bible never does that. That's not its goal. See, so what we found is there's actually about a million reasons for every person or group of people to not belong to God. Yet the Bible challenges that by portraying a universal creation where everything and everyone belongs to God. Every human being, every animal, every bug, every cell, every drop of water, every star in the sky, every oxygen molecule you breathe, it all belongs to God. Well, like we talked about in the beginning, there are different types of belonging. So what does it mean to belong to God? I think it can mean one of two things. Number one is just this idea of universal belonging. Universal belonging is just a belonging because of mere existence. You just happen to exist into that system, so that's the system you belong to. Why am I an American? I was born in America. Grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day in school. But let's say I wasn't born in America and I came to America when I was three. Still went through the American school system. Still said the Pledge of Allegiance every day in school. Would that make me an American? No. There's a process you have to go through, right? But I get to be an American just because I was born into this nation. And that in itself grants me particular privileges. I know sometimes we don't like to talk about privilege. But come on, like, I'm an American. I get privileges because of me being an American. Two weeks ago, we were down in Mexico uh, for a vacation, and we were out at the pool, and uh, I was throwing this ball back and forth with my brother-in-law, and this 14-year-old uh, kid from Mexico that speaks like no English comes up and asks if he can play. Actually, he said something in Spanish. I think he asked if he could play. I don't know. But we did throw the ball back and forth, and we had a good time, and then I gave it to him and left, and that's fun. But I got me thinking how easy it was for me to jump on a plane, fly to Mexico, show them my passport, they stamp it, no questions asked, because I was born in a country where I get almost able to fly to any country in this world. Not any, but for the most part, I can go anywhere in the world, no questions asked. It would be far harder for that kid to just fly into America. I get credit just because I universally belong to as an American. I get privileged just because of that. But there's a difference between that and intentional belonging. Because intentional belonging is belonging due to an action or a constant discipline and achievement and expertise and agreed upon belief and direction that fits a particular criteria. So schools will have some sort of academic accreditation organization that they have to meet those requirements before they can offer degrees so that we as First Baptist can be like, hey, we're offering bachelor's degrees. Anyone that wants one, we'll sign it off for you. 
We can't do that. We have to meet this accreditation where we have particular experts and teachers that are licensed to do a particular thing within that system because it has to be accredited. To belong to that involves a lot more than just universal belonging. So there's an intentionality there, a discipline, a behavior. So the question we're really getting at is not what does it mean to universally belong to God, but what does it mean to intentionally belong to God? Everyone is granted a universal belonging simply because they're designed and loved by the creator of the universe, the one that made them in their image. And being created in that image gives us particular privileges that are allotted to every single person on this planet. The privilege to think critically, analyze patterns, curate direction and plans to study history and think about the future. The privilege to love and be loved. The privilege to create music, art, structure, organization. All of these things are universally unique to the human experience because we both belong to God and the image of God. But this is not God's ultimate desire. God's ultimate desire steps beyond universal belonging into intentional belonging. I had to learn this growing up. When I was in college, um, I, I did that. I don't know if you guys have, have kids have done this, but when I went off to college, uh, you know, universally belonged to my parents, always their son. It's kind of how it works. And so then I went off to college and didn't talk to my parents. Six weeks. I just didn't go home. I was busy. I had to, and one of these days, my, one of the days, my stepdad called me. He's like, hey, your mom has not heard your voice in six weeks. You have to call her. Why? And what I learned very quickly is a universal belonging doesn't matter with your parents once you move out. You got to start curating a bit of an intentional belonging, right? So now, seriously, every time I drive to Taco Bell, I call my mom. This is like our, our time together. I'm like, hey, what's going on? She's like, are you driving to Taco Bell? Yep. This is what we do, right? And you guys know because I'm a part of the Taco Bell rewards program. That's how often I go to Taco Bell. There's got to be an intentional belonging for it to matter. So what determines intentional belonging? Paul's already said it's not works. It's not position. It's not accomplishment. It's not family's position. Galatians tells us it's all about faith. Chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says it this way. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul's saying, no, you've received it by believing, by faith. Chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, he's going to go on to say, just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. There's a shift from universally belonging to an intentional belonging through faith. So then which one are you? Are you someone who universally belongs to God? And, and honestly, love it, hate it, deny it, and embrace it. The fact is, you universally belong to God. But a universal belonging is not enough to fulfill God's desire and direction for your life. God wants you to have an intentional belonging. So how do you do that? Faith. This is what God wants from you. To simply put your life on the line and say, you know what? I believe that Jesus really did exist. That he really did live a perfect life the way God always intended humanity to live when we couldn't ever uphold that. And then he willingly took that life and he gave it up to be punished and beaten on a cross where he paid the price for the sin he never committed and he dies. But at that death, anyone who would put their faith in that reality might put their sin onto Jesus's cross and have it carried to the grave and might receive Jesus's righteousness onto him. 
But the story doesn't end there because Jesus doesn't just die, get buried, and say, okay, we made the sacrifice, let's move on. No, Jesus revives. He returns from the grave, leaving that sin to be buried forever so that we might know the full righteousness and resurrection power of God Almighty. And the Bible says, hey, you all universally belong to God, but anyone that wants to intentionally belong, this is what you must believe. If you don't believe that, man, this, this morning would be a great time. I would love to talk with you about that. But for those of you that intentionally belong to God, that have put your faith, here's my final question, and here's where we'll close. What's the role of First Baptist Church when it comes to this type of belonging? What's God asking us to do? Because th there's a world out there. There are people all over the place in this town that universally belong to the God who created them. But God desires so much more. In fact, he desired so much more that he stepped down into time to rescue them and has commissioned First Baptist Church to be a church in this area that we might convey that message to those who need to hear it. So what do we do? This is what I mean this year when I talk about this idea of moving marbles into belonging. It's the idea that anytime you go out to one of those people that universally belong to God, you say, hey, God's called something more of you. God wants something more of you. He wants your faith. And whether they respond or they don't respond, that's, that's not the point. The point is to go out and say, no, no, you belong intentionally to the God of the universe. Give your life to him. Anytime you have that conversation, that's when this rock gets moved. So we got two more months to kind of catch this thing back up. So the question is, how many conversations can we have about that? We'll talk more in the upcoming weeks of what that looks like for God to, to desire and for broken people to belong to him and for free people to belong for him and for children to belong to him. We'll get into all of that. But for now, what I want you to do for those that intentionally belong, think of someone that you can go have this conversation with this very week. And the next week, come in here and just make us run out of rocks next week. That would be amazing to me. But that conversation of, hey, we want this whole town to belong to Christ intentionally. I can't do it. You alone can't do it. But all of us, empowered by the Spirit, through the gospel, in the community of a life-giving church can make a difference in this world. But we have to take those steps. So who's someone that you can pray about to do that with? We're going to have a time of response. Maybe you want to come up and just pray for that person right now. I would invite you to do that. Maybe you want to pray from your seat. You can do that too. That's, that's great. If you want me to pray for you, I'd love that. I'll be right here. Maybe you've never intentionally belonged to God and you want to do that. I would invite you to come participate with me or just ask me about it. I would, I would just walk you through what it means. But this is a time to reflect on where do you belong and what is God calling you to do because you belong there. Father God, we're grateful for what you do. We're grateful to be your church. And God, I pray even now as we think about how we belong to you, that God, it wouldn't just be a universal belonging. We're thankful for that. I mean, it's a blessing. There's grace in it. The fact that we can breathe and think and live, that's only because you allow us to do it. But God, let us be a church that is far more intentional about who we are and where we belong. God, let us fit into what you're calling us to do. And let First Baptist be a church that truly brings other people to belong to your kingdom. Thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.